Welcome to Zealots of the Gate, a podcast of Comment Magazine. I'm Matthew Kamink. I'm Shadi Hamid. Together we research politics, religion, and the future of democracy at Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. We are writing a book together. This podcast represents an informal space where we can talk about how to live with deep difference. Thanks so much for joining us. Friends, welcome back. We're into season two now. And and always remember, please subscribe wherever you listen. Please leave us a review. Join the conversation. Feel free to um, ask us a question on Twitter or via email. Um, you can reach us via email, zealots at comment.org. Um, and we would just love to engage you in more conversation. Um, as many of you know, I myself am a, a Christian theologian. Shadi is a Muslim political scientist, and this is a space where um, Shadi and I uh, can mix it up and engage in a, a fruitful and frank conversation about faith and politics. We are working on a book on faith and politics, sort of comparing and contrasting Muslim and Christian perspectives on democracy, and uh, this is where you get to, you know, Peek behind the curtain and um, see what we're This is our safe to. space. <laughs> Though I've been told I need to make it less safe for you, Shaddy. I, I've got I've to push you a little harder. And today and we're going to be for talking. today. You're, you're going to put me on the spot. <laughs> that's right. Because today we're talking about fasting. And specifically, of course, um, we've just started uh, Ramadan, which um, I'd love for you to share just a little bit about our producer, Matt Crummy. Uh, self-identifies as a North Dakotan. And so he says, because he's from North Dakota, he doesn't know very much about Ramadan. So he was wondering, he was wondering if you could share, for those of us who are less cultured, just a little bit about what Ramadan is. Um, but the the real thing that we're trying to tackle here is this practice of fasting. Um, this strange... Um, ancient practice of fasting that both Muslims and Christians engage in. Um, what on earth does that have to do with politics and public life? You know, last week we talked about prayer and politics and public life. And today we're digging into um, what does this practice of fasting have to do with um, public life? You know, typically people think about um, things like prayer and fasting as personal and private, um, as spiritual, and not at all political. Um, but what you and I discussed last week was that actually prayer has very real political consequences. Uh, and today we're going to be exploring that of fasting. So, but yeah, before we get into, yeah. for, for the sake of dear Matt Crummy and all those in North Dakota who maybe don't hang out with Muslims quite as much. First of all, what is what is Ramadan and how does the fasting element of Ramadan work? So the holy month of Ramadan, it, it happens according to um, a lunar calendar, so it actually shifts each year. So you can't just put it on your calendar for your Muslim friends and have it the same day in perpetuity. Um, you, people are probably familiar with the basics of you fast from sunrise to sunset. I think where there's sometimes confusion is people will sometimes be like, well, oh, of course you drink water, though. Like, you're just fasting from food during this period, but 
you know, it wouldn't be realistic or healthy to not drink water and it would affect your productivity presumably too. And we'll get to that, this question of whether fasting hurts your productivity. But yes, the fast does include any kind of liquids. So there is no water for this entire period. So if we calculate the hours here, um, around 14 hours of zero water and basically nothing, um, you know, entering one's mouth. So smoking is uh, prohibited, shisha, various other things that people enjoy doing like that. Um, and, um, and I guess, you know, sexual, sexual activity is also um, prohibited during the fast. Um, so that is, um, that's the basic gist. Um, and as you, when you guys hear this episode, we'll probably be about, um, you know, two, almost two weeks into Ramadan. And this is actually the first podcast episode I've done this year without the benefit of caffeine or any kind of liquid. So I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen today. <laughs> I'm going to have to carry um, the energy, the energy. Yeah, on just this to flag that for you all. But I'm going to try my best. I'm going to try my best to be cogent. But just to add a couple things, and this gets to like, what is the purpose of fasting? And I struggle with this a little bit. And I have to say thanks to Matt. I know we did this, you know, in the previous episode where I thanked Matt for broadening my view and deepening my view and appreciation of prayer and some of its public and political implications. Matt has also helped change how I view Ramadan. And I used to be a little bit, I don't know if angry is the right word, but sometimes I would just be like, why does Islam have to be so difficult in this way? This is 30 days of fasting without tea or coffee, which I'm very much dependent on when I'm writing and doing research, and I have to go without that. And it really does affect how much I'm able to get done. So I, used, I almost felt a kind of resentment, like, yeah, I mean, I believe it's Well, you were hangry, true. right? You were hungry anyways. Yeah. That already made you mad. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Like, is why is God... like? You know, why is God asking us to do this seemingly unreasonable thing? And my main concern is someone who has been, unfortunately, I think, preoccupied with productivity for much of my adult life, um, that it was hard for me to accept this idea that productivity has to go down. And not just that, that it should go down. And that's where our conversations really came in, where it was just like, you're not supposed to be productive in the fast. You're supposed to completely shift your orientation so you're not in that kind of standard, late capitalist, self like everything is about getting things done and just being perpetually active. Yeah, well, Shadi, you're very... I had to come to terms with that. Yeah, I mean you're you're a busy guy, you're ambitious, you're productive, you're you're writing books, you're writing articles, you're doing interviews, um and you love your work. You really you genuinely love it. Um and you're surrounded in Washington DC, right, with a very buzzing activity of people who are very ambitious, who are building resumes. And then you have this experience of uh you know, Islam telling you 
you have to slow down. You have to be less productive for this month. And yeah, so I mean, talk a little bit about what that's like being in, you know, being in that world of hyper productivity and then being told to, you know, just being tired. I mean, exactly. And it, it, and it is really different being a Muslim minority in America than, say, being in Egypt, Jordan, or, you know, anywhere else in Muslim majority context, because there, everyone else or almost everyone else is taking part in the fast or at least respecting it. So the whole community, the whole population is oriented towards less productivity. And sometimes it gets pretty over the top where people get extremely lazy and use Ramadan as an excuse to like not do basically anything of of purpose or productivity. Um, but at least you're you're synchronized with your fellow Muslims and fellow citizens and your own rhythm in terms of when people wake up, when they leave work, you know, you're all on the same page and you feel like you're part of something bigger. And that does make it easier. But here in D.C., 99% of the rest of the population around me is not fasting and may not be aware that I'm fasting. So there is a disjuncture where I'm approaching my life in a particular way and I am swimming against the current and the current is strong because DC is a place where everyone is trying to be as ambitious as possible. And, you know, when it comes to writers and analysts and authors, they're writing books, they're writing a lot. And I have to kind of dial that down. So there's a gap that is introduced between me and everyone else. And I just had to start not seeing this as a negative of Ramadan, but to accept it as precisely the point. I have to learn how to accept that productivity is not everything and that life is about trade-offs, that if you want to get closer to God, if you want to increase your self-discipline, if you want to orient your mind and heart towards friends, family, community, and your spiritual practice, you have to give something up. So to the extent that we feel resentful towards Islam for making us fast, like we should actually appreciate this very aspect of it. And that's that took me a while. I know intellectually we all know that, but to actually embrace that and come to terms with it and to stop fighting it. Like, I'm no longer fighting it. I have a kind of resignation that this is the way it's going to have to be for the next, you know, 20, 26 days or whatever. Um, so that's been a shift. And Matt, you've been really helpful. And I, I actually remember a conversation precisely about the productivity question that we had last year. And then I wrote a piece about it for Wisdom of Crowds, which we can include in the show notes I think it was titled something like Against the Cult of Productivity, where I sort of, um, yeah, I just uh, I got to learn to accept certain things. So that's been important for me. Yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> when you're hungry, right, when you're fasting, you, it, ex it has this exposing effect. It exposes things about your culture. So, for example, right, it exposes your, your city's ambition. Uh, it also exposes something about you right you're um 
when we're when we're hungry, we learn things about ourselves. <laughs> we're forced to look at ourselves and think about these kinds of things. Um, but there's also something you kind of tipped in on there. It it reconnects us to our community in an important way, and I get that. Um, in my readings about fasting and Ramadan is that um, it's meant to reconnect you to family, but also to the poor. And that there's, there's an aspect for Muslims of, of understanding and seeing the poor. Could you share just a little bit about that side of things as well? Yeah, sure. So there is one aspect of it where I wouldn't, I wouldn't overemphasize this, but an idea that you can kind of simulate what it might feel like to be hungry and to feel that as something that is sometimes even overwhelming in its intensity when you, you know, you haven't eaten for, you know, God knows how many hours that it can help you relate to those who are less fortunate and to just change, change your basic outlook. Um, and then there is also the kind of practical aspect of giving more to charity during the month of Ramadan and, and specifically um, towards the end of towards the end of Ramadan, where um, the charity aspect, what is known as zakat or almsgiving, becomes becomes central. So these things are intertwined that to fast is to open yourself up to these other practices. I mean, there's also an ex, you know basic expectation that you pray more during Ramadan. There's a nightly prayer that is kind of extra supplementary that people do over the course of the week. And also when you're fasting, you're going to feel guilty about missing any of the five prayers. So you're just going to like, oh, I'm fasting. I should probably also make sure that I'm reaching five instead of like being lazy and doing three. So just when you make that kind of initial intention of deciding to fast, it opens up these other possibilities of spiritual and community practice. And also um, just spending more time with Muslims. So as someone who maybe doesn't spend as much time with Muslims as I might like, or at least in the community here in D.C., Ramadan is the month where I actually go out of my way to do that. And, and it, you're almost, in a sense, forced to because, you know, every day you have to break fast. And, you know, it's nice to not break fast alone. That can be a little bit depressing. So you actually go out of your way to find other Muslims who are breaking fast at the same time so you can share in that experience with them. Yeah, so... Uh, you and I dug in a little bit to uh, one of my good friends. His name is Kyle David Bennett, who has done some really great research on fasting and on the the politics of fasting, the ethics of fasting. And um, he has this great piece in Comment Magazine, which is the host of this podcast. It's on the thickness of fa of fasting, exploring the connection between fasting and public life. And in there, he really presses on Christians, <clears throat> but I... But from what I read, it has some real relevance for Muslims as well, is that Christians often think about fasting as a way to draw closer to God. Um, they often think of fasting as a spiritual or a sort of vertical thing between them and God. And of course, that is an important aspect of what fasting is. But fasting also has a social component or a horizontal that that fasting connects us to those around us, so it connects us to the poor, um, 
but um, to just our, our communities in an important way. And he talks about it in somewhat similar ways to what I've been seeing in my um, readings on Ramadan, which is um, this sense of we can be extremely self-centered when it comes to thinking about food. Um, what do I want to eat? When do I want to eat? What restaurant do I want to eat? What, what kind of diet fits me and my needs? Um, our food practices can be extremely self-centered. Um, we don't think about where our food comes from, how it was produced or sort of the justice involved in those kinds of things. We don't think about our, our waiters or, um, those who prepare the food for us. We tend to be, yeah, just extremely self-centered in how we think about our diets and our food. Um, and in fasting, um, a whole bit of time is opened up for us to begin to think about others and to reorient ourselves um, in new ways to, to redefine our relationship with food and with our city and with others. Um, but also it's an opportunity to reflect on <laughs> our own selfishness and and the ways that we center ourselves. I don't I don't know how that how that connects with you and your own experience with fasting. Yeah, so I like that piece a lot by Kyle David Bennett, and it will include a link to that in the show notes. It is really worth reading, and I'll like just one or one or two things that stood out to me in the piece that really resonated with me. There's this idea that. Once you introduce these radical changes in your daily routine, other people are affected by it around you, and it creates new possibilities that otherwise wouldn't be possible. And to think of it as this kind of expansive act that it shakes things up, and you don't exactly know what's going to happen as a result. So here's one thing that Kyle David Bennett says. He says, the silence I devote myself to in fasting affects my wife and daughter. It tones their temperament, conditions their interactions. It encourages them to fast and pray. Well, at least my wife. Similarly, it affects my neighbors. Um, so that's, that's one. Um, he also says, my register of pleasure and pain is recalibrated. I tweak how I respond to bodily pleasure and pain. When my stomach reaches for the table or turns because of what it sees, I know what it wants and respond differently because of previous experiences of fasting. So these are just a couple examples of how introducing this change has these kinds of knock-on effects in other parts of your life, and then other people are changed because of it. And then when you think about a community of people fasting together, then you can almost amplify those effects and multiply the impact. At least that would be the idea in theory. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, just the fact that you are reflecting on your own, you know, struggles with productivity and ambition, that invites everyone around you to reflect on their own relationship with their work and their own relationship with productivity. And yeah. do I need to slow down? Do I? So you're inviting your neighbors to reflect on that as well and to just reflect on the ways that an ambitious city is impacting them. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And it's helpful for these, for these folks in DC and elsewhere, because I think a growing number of us intuitively understand that our work, however much we love it, even if we feel that it's a calling. And I think both you and I, Matt, 
feel that our work is a calling, that it's never going to give us the satisfaction that we think it will. There's a built-in limitation. We keep on chasing after one accolade over another. And I think book writing is a good example of it, you know, um, where you just get on this treadmill and it just like literally never ends. You think, oh, when I finish my PhD dissertation, I can take a break and enjoy my life a little bit. But then you want to convert your dissertation into your first book. Then you're like, oh, once I get my first book out and prove myself, I'm done. You know, not done, but you can just chill. But then it's like, well, what if people think my first book was a fluke? I have to show them that I have more in me, that I can improve upon the first book and show that I'm like a proper author. So then the second book comes out, it does better and you get like additional accolades. But then it just like where where do you say that the more the more success we have and the more productive we are, it invites a desire for yet more success and for more productivity. And there's no way to know where where to draw the line. And that's, I think, at a basic level, what religion can and should do. Now, a lot of what we're talking about is theoretical because this is this is not actually how it works in practice. Like people people aren't necessarily changed by the fasting experience, and they might actually emphasize overeating at night, and then they stay up until five a.m. and then they wake up really late, and they're sort of they're doing the fast technically but they're losing the spirit of it. It's not actually about overindulgence and like partying with your Muslim friends and like smoking shisha all night, you know? Yeah. So it was funny. I was, so I was reading, uh, I think it was Tariq Ramadan who's and a couple others who are complaining about the ways in which Ramadan has been commercialized like Christmas. And they're saying, you know, if we're not careful, um, Ramadan is going to become as meaningless as Christmas has become <laughs> in the West that, you know, Christmas is now commercialized and capitalism has taken over Christmas and it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ anymore. And the good news, it's just all about, um, overconsumption. And, uh, yeah, I was wondering how you, what, what you think about all that. Yeah. And so I was just home with my parents for the first couple of days of Ramadan. And it's interesting that, my mom had all these Ramadan decorations and Ramadan napkins and all of that, which is all great. But it's interesting that how more and more party stores are carrying like Ramadan themed, you know, products that, you know, we as consumers are meant to, not that, you know, that can, that can kind of, the commercialization of Ramadan, I think, is a risk because it's become more part of mainstream culture. You hear reference to it on TV shows and movies, and there are more and more schools, actually, public schools, including where I grew up in, in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, that now have Ramadan as like one of their like recognized holidays. And then there's a celebration at the end of Ramadan called Eid which is now being given as a holiday for all students where they take off school and that sort of thing. So there's a there's a kind of Americanization of Ramadan and the idea of Muslims as consumers and then companies who have to kind of meet that um meet that need is interesting and we'll have to see where it goes. Yeah. But I think more broadly the fact that we live in a kind of late capitalist society 
where uh you know structurally we're encouraged to have immediate gratification that we're not actually conditioned to engage in reflection and sacrifice and orienting towards non-worldly things so it's i think there's also just like a broader issue that in the societies that we live in in much of the world including muslim countries it's harder to have the full spiritual impact of ramadan because the way our consumption patterns are structured and how we don't know how to stay still in the moment we're always being primed for wanting things and desiring things and we want what other people want and you know it makes it more difficult um but i want to turn the tables on you a little bit matt because you know we've talked about how muslims fast i actually don't still to this day unfortunately despite our friendship don't have as informed of an understanding of how Christian fasts work and Lent being one example, uh, you know, and I think in different traditions, there are different ways of doing it. But because it's less regimented, and we talked about this in the previous episode about prayer, Muslims have more, quote unquote, regimented practices where there's less room for improvisation. Where I hear from my Christian friends, though, that some of it seems kind of soft and fluffy. They're like, oh, I won't eat meat for Lent, you know, or I won't eat, like, I won't have dessert or, like, ice cream. I don't know how far people take it, but it seems, like, kind of soft and not, like, particularly rigorous. And I wonder if that's considered, like, a legitimate fast. But, you know, we as Muslims, we tend to, you know, we're we're a little bit more intense about certain ritual practices, right? Yes, yes. We've discussed multiple times how <laughs> Islam is more badass than Christianity. <laughs> So, you know, yeah. Yes, yes. Don't, don't want to no, rub okay, it in so, too much. So a couple things on fasting and Christianity. One is that uh, historically it's been sort of owned by the really intense Christians of the monks and the nuns and the, you know, the ascetics. Um, whereas it's it's much more rare for modern Christians to engage in the practice of fasting. Often when fasting happens for us, um, it can be sort of this sense of, I have something really important, like I have a very important decision coming up, and so I really need to listen to God. So I'm going to engage in fasting for a period of time to help me as I'm making this decision. Hmm. Um, or it could be this sense that I need to give this thing up because my relationship with this particular thing is disordered. Um, so often Christians, it, it, it's, it's um, at least the Christian circles that I run in, it can be sort of, I need to reconnect with God. Uh, I need to make a big decision. Or I've got a, a disordered relationship with some particular thing, whether it be sugar or alcohol or whatever it is, but I need to fast to reorient myself towards that thing. Um and I think all of those, you know, Christian practices are legitimate and 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 valuable. Um, but I think for me, a couple couple things. One is that I mean, this is why I really appreciate you know Kyle's article is that it's not just about reconnecting with God or self improvement, but Christian fasting is supposed to 
reconnect us to our neighbors and our world. It's not supposed to be an, an otherworldly practice, but actually deeply material. And as you were talking about how fasting can cause us to reflect on what really matters in life and what are the things that, that don't matter in life. And it, it connects with me with another Christian practice, which is communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist in which we take the bread and the wine and remember Christ's death and resurrection. Um, it's at that table, it's in that consumption that we remember that um, this is the consumption that will truly satisfy us um, as opposed to um, the sort of daily consumption that will not ultimately satisfy us for a long period mm. of time, right? This is, um, this is uh, you know, what Jesus calls living water um, that, will, that will satisfy us. And so fasting is meant to reorient us towards the things that truly matter, but also reorient us towards others. Yeah. And that's where this, I want to bring this to politics now, because it seems to me that, you know, American political life, um, it sort of goes without saying, uh, is extremely self-centered. We talk a lot about tribalism, which is, you know, this understanding that I want the state to serve my tribe, to protect my tribe, to protect my interests and my way of life. Um, and fasting as a practice is meant to orient ourselves to people who are not like us um, and to remember that and to remember our responsibility to those who are not um, in our tribe. And, um, and so we can think about fasting uh, from the political news, which is something you've written about recently about yeah. sort of the need to the need to withdraw. And this kind of withdrawal is is strategic and temporary. It's not permanent. You're not withdrawing from political life permanently, but you pull back in order to see the world rightly. Um, in order to see food rightly and feasting rightly. And when I think about the politics of fasting, that's what a that's where I'm at is um, we need to withdraw as human beings from time to time to have our political lives assessed and reordered um, that when you're in the mix and the noise, you can't see certain things. Um, and it's when you withdraw that you're able to um, with God and with others, you're able to sort of reassess and reorder um, maybe your, your political activity and your, your political perspectives and, and it's not so self-centered. So I, those are some of the things I'm thinking about. Yeah. Okay. I want to dive more into the politics. A thought does come to mind though. Um, it's a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's relevant. I was talking to uh, a couple of friends the other night. Um, and for some reason we were talking about COVID, even though like, you know, obviously people have mostly like forgotten about it or moved on or whatever, but we were reminiscing about how we long for those first few months of COVID, not for like the bad parts where the death you know, and people, destruction. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but in, in terms of those couple months where almost everything was closed and at most you were just maybe seeing a couple friends who were part of your bubble or whatever, and spending just a lot of time at home and 
And I think a lot of people came out of that experience with a different set of priorities. And you did notice a lot of people who did change their lives in fundamental ways by, you know, quitting their job or deciding that they wanted to do something completely different that they were more passionate about or people who ended relationships or got married in a very short period of time because there was just this kind of concentration of attention and you weren't distracted by all these other things. And that's actually very difficult. It's very difficult to have a situation like that in modern life. And we need external interventions for that to even be possible. So COVID was an external intervention that we had no control over and it forced a reckoning for many of us. Um, and, and without that, many people wouldn't have had that reckoning. And I think that fasting and also just the constraints that religion puts upon us and is a certain kind of external constraint. It comes outside of us and we feel, and so sometimes, you know, I think non-religious folks will look at this like, you know, as it's, as a sort of silly thing when religious people say, well, I can't do that. I'm not allowed to do that. And then they'll say, well, you, you can do it. Like no one is actually physically preventing you from doing those things. But for the believer, it does feel like a pretty strong constraint, even though like no one is like literally physically shackling you. So Ramadan, I think if you've decided that you're going to fast, you've introduced an external constraint that is beyond you. And you're almost, I don't want to say you're trapped because that has a pejorative connotation, but you've, you've accepted a set of constraints and then you have to operate accordingly with that as the given similar to with COVID. We didn't have a choice. The constraint was there for those couple months. And within those constraints, we had to pursue our lives in a different way. Well, I think this is the, this is the wisdom you see in, in, in the, the sort of Sabbath laws that you find in Judaism, these sort of resting laws in Christianity. And, and of course in Ramadan and in Islam is that constraint can actually produce freedom that um and i can imagine you know your your more secular friends thinking that you are you know um oppressed by your religion but actually ramadan can free you um from your own ambition for a little while right it can it can offer you it can offer you a little bit of liberation from exactly you know shaddy's career goals you can take a break from that right. because you have to <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But even secular folks, I think deep down, many of them want something like this. And I've, I don't know if I've made this joke to you before, uh, Matt, but I have, I used to do keto some time back and I stopped. So, you the know, the keto diet, the keto, yeah, the keto yeah. diet, right. And what I found really compelling about it was, okay, well, I have described it in the past as the Islam of diets. I do see it as having some really interesting resemblances to how Islam views constraints. So keto, for those of you who are not familiar, is a very intense practice. Um, and there are pretty serious, far-reaching constraints on what you can eat. So you can't really go above a certain level of net carbs per day, like around 20 to 30. But for those of you who don't know what that means, that means you like no bread, no rice, 
no sugar, no, like the things that people like, a lot of those are going to be out. Um, so no pizza and burgers because both include bread and so forth. And it's it's really constraining. But w- once you accept those constraints and just give in to them, so you're no longer resisting. So there has to be that initial choice where you come to terms with the constraint. Within those constraints, you have this incredible freedom. You can have as much cheese as you want and as much meat as you want. You can pretty much do anything you want as long as you're not crossing certain boundaries, which I think is also, you know, I don't want to overstate this, but kind of how Islam works too. People think, oh, there's so many things that you can't do. It's so restrictive. But once you kind of just like, you know that what those restrictions are, you don't always have to follow them. You should, whatever, but people are sinners, so on and so forth. But then within those constraints, you can find a different kind of freedom. And I think that this is also something I increasingly hear from Christian Christian writers and authors, especially those who are critical of liberalism, those who might call themselves post-liberal. This idea of freedom within constraint is very much central. And it also fits in with a lot of you know recent research in behavioral economics about the paradox of choice, that having unlimited choice makes us unhappy. And even from a secular perspective, we have to find ways to restrict our choice. Um, otherwise, we're going to be in trouble. The whole jars of jam experiment where you give one group three jars of jam and the other group 27 jars of jam, and then you see their self-reported satisfaction after they try the jam. And it's like a massive difference. The people who only have the three jars of jam are much more happy with their choice afterwards because they're not wondering about all these alternative possibilities. Where with 27, you're never going to feel comfortable with your choice. Yeah. And this is also, I think the way that our free society is structured, we can choose to be anything we want and do anything we want whenever we want, which sounds awesome at first, but is actually paralyzing in a way. Yeah, I think the sense is that you become a prisoner of your own appetite. Um, You become a prisoner of your own desire. And and that's the core difference between Ramadan and keto is that... um, Keto is a fad that will come and go, and there'll be a new diet that comes next year and the year after that, and they will all be designed to um, be sold and commercialized, and they're designed specifically to help you get healthy and self-actualize and become more productive, right? That's the, the purpose is, like, this diet will help you be healthier and work longer and harder, Right, Ramadan is not designed to make you healthy and and productive, and you know, serving the capitalist technological progress. The purpose of of Ramadan is to connect you to God and to other people, and yeah. that's I think the difference. Keto is not at all doesn't care at all about your relationship to your neighbors and your family and the poor or anything true. like true. that. Right, <laughs> definitely true. Yeah. And, and all of this stuff falls under the rubric of self-optimization. Like everyone is trying to maximize their potential. And so many things are marketed towards us that are supposed to help us do this. The productivity and, hacks and all that. Yeah, productivity yeah. hacks, life hacks, all of that. Yeah. There's much more to say about the the politics of it. And we can go back to that in terms of how we think about this on the broader level of 
American public debate in politics. Like if we imagine a situation where a growing number of Muslims, Christians, and Jews in in America fasted more and more intently and incorporated that into their spiritual practice, what kind of political effects that might have. But before we get into that, just so I have a better understanding of your starting points, can you tell me and our dear listeners, how does Matt fast and what does it mean to you? Yeah, it's not a it's not a very common practice for me. Um, I did engage in a in a fast. I remember in college that was designed with my my college community around the issue of poverty, and we were we were fasting on behalf of a poor community, and we were raising money um, for them to eat. And so, um, a group of us college kids did that, um, and that was so that one was economically oriented. Hmm. Um, Another fast that I engaged in had to do with a a spiritual retreat um, in which we fasted. Um, And that, once again, was very oriented towards connecting me to God. So the first one was economic, you know, reflecting on the fact that I had a lot and I was wealthy. The second fasting was more about connecting me to God and it was more spiritual. Um, So that's kind of how it's but worked thought, for me, don't you? Uh, but don't I'm, you also do? Don't you also do Lent? Uh, yes, I do, and um, from time to time, I've given up um, alcohol for Lent and things like that. But I've never fasted for Lent, like a forty-day fast. Oh, okay, um, okay. But I think I still think, like, as far maybe it's not a fast in the in the kind of the full sense of that Ramadan is, but. Lent is its own kind of fast. You're fasting from something in particular, and you're making a conscious choice to refrain from some kind of consumption with the aim to get closer to God. Yes, it would the, to be closer to God to prepare for um, Holy Week and for Easter. So it's sort of a time of of purification and um, reflection and preparation, so that when you approach the time of Jesus's death and resurrection, you have considered um, the ways in in which your life and your heart is disordered, and you have brought those things to God. And when you give up something, that helps you uh, reflect upon what's going on in your heart. Because, you know, often food can have, you know, we talk about like emotional eating, uh, food can have a numbing effect on our mind and heart. Like it's a great way to distract yourself. Um, and when you are hungry and when you've sort of constrained yourself um, from, you know, maybe, you know, having a drink of alcohol at the end of the day or having coffee in the morning, um, when you've when you've withheld that, um, you and, and you feel that that gap, um, that's sort of a bodily... Uh, trigger for you to reflect on spiritual questions that you would prefer to ignore. Um, There are just conversations with God that you don't want to have, but you know you need to have them. And when you are hungry or when you are craving coffee or when you're craving alcohol or whatever it is in your rhythm of your day, you during Lent, you've created a disruption that triggers... um, a conversation you know you need to have with God that you don't want to have. Um, so yeah, those are those are just a couple things. That's helpful. But I think I, lastly, you know, I think um, 
I think I would love for Christians to reflect more upon the fact, the question of why don't we fast more? And in what ways have our consumption patterns, um, have we been trained to just consume and numb and acquire hmm. in such ways that we don't practice fasting the way we should and need to. And the, the Muslim practice of fasting during Ramadan is very convicting for me as a Christian hmm. to see Muslim. Sometimes, you know, I have some Muslim friends who, you know, it's pretty obvious their faith is not terribly important to them. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, peripheral thing in their life and yet they do fast um yeah and that's very convicting to me that here's this person who really doesn't take their faith terribly seriously but they're capable of fasting uh so what's going on with me and uh what do i need to be thinking about in that way and that's that's part of you know this underlying theme for our podcast and our conversation is the ways that you and I compel one another to yeah. return to our faith and return to our God. Yeah, it's a really interesting point you make about, you know, even lax Muslims taking the fast pretty seriously, which is true. And sometimes I wonder about it because con considering it is quite hard to do, especially in a Muslim minority context, these people who otherwise are maybe we can call them cultural Muslims or more... Um, like they're not as theologically centered. It's just more of a kind of identity. Yet they will they will oftentimes do the fast, or people who are otherwise not practicing um, will take the fast seriously. And part of that is social pressure, and a reminder that social pressure can be good, where people feel guilty if they're not at least performing the fast. Now you don't know what people are doing in the comfort of their own homes, but there is a lot of there is a lot of um, expectation that publicly you will act as if you've been fasting the whole day. And if you've like cheated or like had a little bite of something or some coffee, like, you know, so, you know, it is interesting that this, you know, the stigma on not fasting is very strong, even in otherwise secularized contexts. And obviously some people might not see that as a positive thing because it, it makes them think of a kind of coercive aspect of social pressure. But that's just worth noting as like an interesting thing that has always struck me. Um, and um, But I do wonder, like in the pre-capitalist period in, in Christendom, was there a more normal, regular practice of fasting that people took part in? Because you mentioned that, you know, Christians should reflect on how a consumerist materialist society has maybe moved them away from some of these types of practices. And it just makes me wonder, was it different when we didn't have these consumerist patterns? Yeah, I don't know too much about the, the history of these things. I mean, in one side of it, the Catholic tradition has often had a sort of a, a, a bit of a spiritual hierarchy where the the monks and the nuns are the ones who are extra spiritual. And so fasting is more of a practice for them to do um, almost on our behalf than for the, the regular folks to be doing. Hmm. But I mean, I, I imagine there are, there are a variety of, of issues there. One of them for the Protestants is 
Um, just getting away from, I'm going to be careful with how I say this, but um, one thing that's very important for Protestants is this understanding that God loves you not because of the things that you do, um, but God just loves you. So Protestants never want to say, um, you should fast so that God will love you. Or mm. if you fast, God will reward you with extra points. Um, so that should never be the the purpose of, you know, you don't want to encourage people to think that God doesn't love you because you don't fast enough. Um, but you fast out of this um, free desire to um, really draw near to God and draw near to others and to, to reorder your life, not to convince God that you're lovable. Mm. So that's an important thing. Whereas with Islam, I do get the sense that there is this uh, more of a reward system with, with fasting. I mean, I, I, uh, yeah, a reward system sounds a bit like a, oh, like, oh, a point system. And then you're yeah. kind of like, you know, uh, but even like sinning po- during Ramadan is extra bad, right? Like, yeah, you're definitely not. Yeah, you're, it, it is. I don't know how much worse in like a quantifiable sense, yeah. but yes, I mean, <laughs> sinning is, is more frowned upon because in holy months and, and there's also some, you know, traditions about how something like the devil is chained during Ramadan. So that to the extent that you commit sins during the holy month, it's not like, it's more you doing it. Like the devil isn't tempting you. So, uh, you know, no that sort of, there's that <laughs> sort of thing. So, um, but yeah, you know, as we've talked about in previous episodes, like it is, it's always fascinating to me how we kind of come back to this point of, the incentive structures in our respective faiths, how Islam has a has quite a quite different incentive structure than Christianity does. And just even what you were just saying now, like it almost sounded to me like in a sense, like there aren't supposed to be obligations to that's maybe I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but there aren't things that you have to do and there aren't rules in the same way because you know, there's justification by faith alone. I mean, works aren't as central, like in the Protestant imagination, which means that it would be hard to actually have a regimented kind of requirement of prayer or fasting, because you know, part of it in Islam is that if you don't pray five times a day, you're getting some, you're getting some serious sins there. You're accumulating some. That is, you know, and if you're not fasting. You're getting some sins there, and there is there is this sense of where are my good deeds and where are my bad deeds because I have to be thinking about my overall balance in terms of my you know the whole getting into heaven thing. <laughs> so, but anyway, but um, you know, one thing that you brought up to me some time back is so you, you're saying that Christians should be more appreciative of the conviction that Muslims display in the process of fasting during Ramadan. And I think that one reply that listeners might have in their own minds is, well, you know, is it worth it for them to, to try fasting a day of Ramadan in solidarity or in, in, in kind of community with their Muslim, you know, friends and neighbors. And I think that you had actually thought about this before about the idea of, you know, you want to like, you want to understand more about how your Muslim friends, uh, 
experience the fast from an anthropological perspective, but also there might be some benefit in just becoming more familiar with that in terms of, you know, your own thinking. And from what I recall, you had debated whether or not this would be an appropriate thing to do. Do you want to say more about that? Because I really find that fascinating, you know, because there are, you know, there are oftentimes people who will do like, oh, for Mus- for Islam Awareness Week, we're going to fast to show our friendship with the Muslim group or community, and we'll just try it for a day and then join them for iftar at the end. Yeah, yeah. You and I talked about this because I had thought about, hey, what if I what if I did a little fasting um, and and joined you for iftar? Um, and we talked about it and you said something that like, as soon as you said, it just snapped in for me of why I didn't like what I had just suggested, (laughs) um, which was, um, it feels like spiritual tourism. Um, it feels like, Hey, let me, let me try on Islam for fun as this, uh, technique and just kind of see what it's like. Um, but keeping myself distant, um, from those kinds of things. And, um, I would be very curious of our listeners, um, our dear listeners to chime in on Twitter or, um, on email for their wise reflections on, uh, participation in other people's, uh, in other faiths, practices and and what they think and what their experience has been of those things it's a very it's it's not something that i have considered very often and i know a lot of other people and other scholars have thought long and hard about it um but my my big time concern is cheap spiritual tourism um in which you're just like hey it'd be neat to be muslim for a day and see what that's like or as if, you know, Shaddy would think of me as a true friend and ally if I if I did this practice with him. And oh, I hate that the word ally came out of my mouth. So anyways, yeah, yeah. I do want to um, someday experience the iftar with you. I think that the, that the communal familial connection of feasting is is really attractive to me. It's been one thing that I've tried to convince my fellow Christians of is the practice of feasting is, Hmm. you know, as on the other side of the practice of fasting, the practice of feasting is really important, um, to celebrate the, the goodness of God and the goodness of our community and to encourage one another and to take joy in good food and friends and family. And, um, and I believe that God delights in that. And not only does God delight in feasting, um, I think it's, I think it's good for us. Um, I think, I think that we need those periods of feasting and celebration. And, um, once again, the, the Muslim practice of iftar is, is something I'm jealous of for Christians to have more of a, a, a celebratory practice. Um, you know, historically, you know, Easter feasts and Christmas feasts were, were a big deal. Um, but we kind of lose that frankly, because, American Christians are constantly feasting. <laughs> um, we're like gorging ourselves rather than having these these sort of special moments of of celebration before God and community. I would really second your your call to listeners um, to tell us if you've had your own kind of internal debates about how to engage in other people's or other religions' fasting practices. 
And just a reminder that um, you can get in touch with us on Twitter by using the hashtag ZealotsPod or just tag us. And you can also email us, as Matt said. That would be really interesting to hear because I actually don't have a great ch- sense of how widespread this sort of um, spiritual tourism, if you will, is. Or one might even call it, uh, perhaps more pejoratively, spiritual brownface. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's there you oh, go. Which, getting a little more intense. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> One question I ha- I did want to get in here before we we close up has to do with um, the politics of Ramadan in in the Middle East and the ways in which political behavior in the Middle East um, changes at all during uh, Ramadan or um, what sorts of things you've seen from your studies of Middle Eastern politics around, um, yeah, what happens in Egypt and Saudi Arabia and things like that? There's two ways of looking at it. One is that because people are more apathetic because they're tired, that it's harder to actually get people to do things. That's one side of it. But I think it's almost... But then, you know, fasting has been tied to political movements and political intensification and, you know, liberation struggles, um, you know, over the past century. But part of that is because if people are more focused on God, if they are actually embracing the full experience of the fast, it will focus the mind. It will give you a sense of what's more important and maybe even what's worth fighting for. And it'll also perhaps introduce a fearlessness where where you might have otherwise been afraid of being arrested for participating in a protest. You might feel, because you feel closer to God, empowered um, because you trust in God. And so I think we see a kind of variation, um, and it would be hard to generalize. But I think those are, you know, two of the two of the ways of looking at it. And um, there are some debates which I think are a little bit outside the scope of this conversation on how fasting affects um, kind of military struggles, um, sometimes in intuitive ways, but also in counterintuitive ways, where um, there can be you know, sometimes an intensification of certain uh, military confrontations, you know, historically and and, and more recently um, that are tied to the time of the year it is. And, um, you know, um, so interesting stuff there. But, um, you know, I I don't know. I mean, well, maybe this is a good segue to ask you you, because I think in our last episode, we talked about prayer and how it was quite political in, in certain ways. And I think the link there was more clear. I think fasting, it's not as obvious, you know, there's the basic stuff that if you're fasting and you're you're then humbling yourself before God because you're doing something very difficult out of submission to him, then there is a political aspect to that, as we've talked about, where it encourages you to see yourself as smaller and and to humble yourself before God. But I do wonder about like scaling up 
fasting. And in some ways, this is already happening in America through in intermittent fasting, um, which is a secular practice that bears some resemblance to, to Ramadan. I wouldn't want to overstate that resemblance. But I was just, and it's interesting, another conversation I had recently was with with a few friends who were not Muslim, who have all done intermittent fasting to one degree or another in the past, but also several of them are sober curious and just in the last year or so have kind of reassessed their own rela relationship to alcohol consumption. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, they're doing intermittent fasting and they've stopped drinking. Um, like, that is, it just... Just become Muslim already. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and I think Muslims appreciate these sorts of things when they're seeing them in other people because, in a way, it confirms to them that Islam has a wisdom that is applicable to those who don't even share the theological convictions that Muslims have, that people just naturally on their own gravitate towards these spiritual practices but secularize them. And then we started talking about whether we can imagine a religious awakening on a mass level, like we, that a lot of us have been noticing people changing in interesting ways, anecdotally, and whether there is this spiritual yearning that is undergirding some of these decisions that people are making, that they're searching for something, and now they're doing it in a more kind of... um. Uh, kind of self-denying, like there's an aspect of self-denial and that is almost religious in nature. Anyway, I, I don't know where I'm going with this, just to say that I do wonder, okay, what does all of this mean politically? And maybe just like, what, what do you think? Like how political is some of this stuff? I would say that there's a lot there. I mean, particularly, I mean, we talked about how in Ramadan, you are expected to be giving to the poor. You are expected to be reflecting upon the fact that others are hungry. Um, so there is a political dimension to this of reflecting on those who are not like you in the same socioeconomic uh, situation. And so it seemed my understanding, my reading of Ramadan is that it should have political consequences for how Muslims orient themselves and think about the responsibilities of the state and of corporations uh, to be thinking about others um, and not simply thinking about themselves and what they want, but to be you know reminded of the fact that they live in a society with neighbors who don't have homes and don't have food. Um, and similarly, um, for Christianity, um, you know one of the one of the chief sins is gluttony which is core to selfishness, this, this sense of it's never enough and it can never be enough about me. And um, to think about, you know, your secular friends who are engaging in dieting and things like that and looking for constraints and looking for spiritual practices. Yeah, there is this haunting sense in late modernity, in secularism, that we were created for something more and that we should treat one another with respect and we should share what we have with others. Um, and we're haunted. We are just haunted um, with a, a lack of satisfaction with self-centered living. 
um, and a lack of satisfaction with consumption that it's never enough. And so I, I too, I see my secular neighbors looking, um, looking for ways to be involved in, in a political economy that helps others looking for ways to constrain their, you know, insatiable desires. Um, but ultimately, I mean, like keto and, and all of these others, they, um, <clears throat> the things that we create for ourselves, the constraints we create for ourselves are ultimately fads. And we end up creating constraints that are all about self-actualization again. So it just becomes this wheel where, you know, this time it's keto and next time it's, you know, mindfulness and the next time it's, you know, whatever. And, and it is actually, it's capitalism that produces <laughs> these various diets and these various practices of self-actualization and constraint. Um, and it ultimately will not satisfy. And the fact that, you know, Christianity and Islam over the centuries has a, has a, have, have reservoirs of wisdom, not simply for reordering our own lives, but for reconnecting us to others. And that's why I don't have any faith in keto making better citizens who care about each other. I don't think keto would ever be able to produce that. And I don't, I don't have any faith in a, in a mindfulness spiritual retreat ever inspiring people to start up a soup kitchen or to start to house homeless people, um, because they're fundamentally self-centered spiritual practices. Um, and they are creations of a capitalist order, which is about consumption. I love that we're getting that anti-capitalist towards the end of this episode, our kind of latent socialist. I'm not a socialist. I'm not a socialist. Well, they say, you know what some people say? Jesus was a socialist. That's what I know. That's what I hear. We'll talk about that some other time. (laughs) But it just, you know, as we end here, I just want to say one thing after what you said, which is I do wonder if the only way we can truly move beyond ourselves is by having a higher power. Like at some basic level, we keep on coming back to this starting premise. There's all these things that people can try out, all these kind of pseudo-spiritual or even spiritual practices that are detached from from God. And that detachment means that they are inherently limited in what they can do because they always fall back on the self and the ego and making the self sovereign instead of making something beyond ourselves sovereign. And this is not to kind of suggest to those of our listeners who are atheists or agnostics or not religious that, you know, that things are hopeless for them or anything, but I do, you know, we want to invite you. We want to invite you to believe in God. (laughs) Well, well, that's not, okay. Look, you know, you know how I feel about conversion. Like I'm, I know, I, I, you know, but but I, I, I do know for sure that there is a reply from non-religious people, and, and they understandably can um, bristle a little bit at the kind of sometimes perhaps perceived, you know, perceived superiority of believers who think that they have the key. And because they believe in God, it allows them to be more moral, to be more giving, 
to be more thoughtful towards others. So I do also want to acknowledge how that is a tricky thing, you know, that can be, you know, a little bit, you know, I don't, offensive, I don't know. self um, yeah. <laughs> but I'd be curious if anyone has thoughts on that in particular, do feel free to share that with us as well. I think there's a lot in this episode that is worth unpacking. Yeah. And, and of course, I mean, to speak, to speak to that, I'm really quickly before we wrap up. Yeah. The purpose of fasting is not to demonstrate or to learn about how awesome we are, <laughs> but actually as we fast, we, we learn about our own disorders, frankly, and our own, um, our, our own needs for, uh, redemption and restoration and our need for God. And so fasting, the proper end of fasting is not a proud religious person, but a humble religious person. Amen to that. Yeah, let's let's end it there. Thank you so much for listening to Zealots of the Gate. We would love to hear from you, um, your own practices of, of fasting, either you know in Ramadan or with Christianity, um, or for those of you who um, are on a spiritual journey yourself, um, we'd love to hear about the role fasting plays in your public political social life the way you relate to your neighbors um if you like what you've heard please uh, check out the podcast intellectual seedbed at comment.org you will find that article on fasting we were discussing um yeah so you can write to us at um, zealots at, at comment.org you can also connect with us on twitter at shadi hamid or at Matthew Kamink, uh, and you can expect a sincere and kind exchange. Our thanks to our sponsor, Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life, which hosts Shadi and I. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's been a great conversation, Shadi. Thanks, Matt. And we should also say that Zealots at the Gate is hosted by Common Magazine, produced by Ali Crummy, audience strategy by Matt Crummy with editorial direction by Ann Snyder. Thanks to all of them for their support and help with this podcast. I'm Shadi Hamid. And I'm Matthew Kamink. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Bye.